Amen. You can be seated. While I'm getting my stuff out here, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to get in trouble, but I'm going to say it anyhow. The second song that we sang, you might not have been super familiar with it. You haven't heard it on the radio yet. That's because Josh wrote it. In your worship folder, is a, it's not actually an outline today, it's, it's verses, because we're covering a lot of ground as we do this series. We are in a series, and we're in part four in the series, and it's a question that many people have. What's the big deal about church? And so we're walking through Acts just very quickly and looking at what the big deal is. And we started off the first week talking about it had a big start It had a big start on the very first day. The first message that was preached, 3,000 people came to Jesus. Within a couple weeks, there was 5, 10, 15,000 people who had become followers of Jesus. So we talked about the big start. The second week, we talked about big prayers and how they didn't just pray for safety and security that they had. They wanted to be bold, and we continued that theme the following week, and we talked about the fact that they not only had big prayers, they were big and bold. And we passed out these little wristbands last week that said, be bold on it. Um, and, I, and I know I say, if you, um, if you miss a Sunday, you miss a lot. And some of you are thinking, oh, I couldn't make it. I might have extras. Okay, You'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. This week is about, um, continuing this, it's about the fact that the church had a big mission. And it was never, ever about a building. So many people, when they say, when they say, what do you think of when you think of church? They think of building. I went to the church. In fact, we have this, it's kind of a, it's almost like a running joke in our family. Where are you? I just cannot say during the week, I'm at the church. The church isn't here. I'm the only one in the building. I'm not at the church. I'm at the office, is what I say. And sometimes they'll catch me. You're at the church? You mean everybody's there? No, everybody's not here. It's not a building. The church is a movement. It's a movement that was launched to touch the world. And at the core of the message of the church is this. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's the core of the message. And this was a message. It literally rocked the city of Jerusalem about two months after the resurrection, as these new followers of Jesus boldly flooded the streets with this message. And thousands of people, thousands of Jews embraced the gospel. And suddenly, this fragile balance with Rome, they had the Jewish leaders in the church, they had Rome, and they were trying to get their stuff together so that we control little of this, you control little of this, and everything is good. But it was a very fragile balance. All of a sudden, that was getting upset big time. And so nobody wanted that. Rome didn't want it. The Jewish leaders didn't want it. So the apostles were arrested. They were beaten severely, warned not to mention the name of Jesus again. And here's what we read last week in Acts 5. It says this. After that beating, it says the apostles left the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish lawyer court thing. Rejoicing. After they had been severely beaten, scarred for the rest of their lives, they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And that's a big deal. All throughout the book of Acts, all throughout the Bible, that's a big deal. They didn't suffer um, uh, disgrace because of a building. They didn't dis- even suffer disgrace because of a belief. They suffered disgrace because of the name, the name of Jesus. <clears throat> it says, day by day, 
in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. And it's interesting because we don't find them huddling together, you know. Oh, how can bad things happen to good people? Or where is God? And if God really loved me, he wouldn't let this happen. We don't see any of those questions. We find them stepping out in an incredibly bold way and saying, in spite of what you tell us, we can't stop talking about what we've seen. A resurrected Savior. We can't stop talking about this message that he was sent from God to be the Savior of the world. So as the weeks went on, the church continued to grow and grow and grow, and it overflowed out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding area, and things got kind of big and complicated, so they began to develop some you know, hierarchy and structure, and, and other leaders were chosen, and other leaders surfaced that began to take on some of the responsibility, and one of those leaders was a man named Stephen. We don't know much about Stephen. Um, other than he surfaced basically as one of the first servants, one of the first deacons, they called him, in the local church. And the, the leaders looked at him as, oh, this is a target that won't get us in quite as much trouble as the upper leaders. And so they arrested him. They brought him before the same Sanhedrin, and they paid witnesses to come in and accuse him of things, things that he didn't say. <clears throat> and one after another, excuse me, I've been... <laughs> doing this all week. So, how about this? On the count of three, everybody that needs to do that, <laughs> do that or cough. Ready? One, two, three. <clears throat> Good. <clears throat> now I don't feel so old. So, anyhow, where was I? <laughs> anyhow, these paid witnesses came and they just kind of lined up. And they were saying all these things that would make him look really bad. And it wasn't true. It was not things that, that he said. And so they gave him a chance to present his defense. And his defense is presented in Acts chapter 7. And I, we're not going to go through it today. You can read it. Um, basically, all of Acts 7 is his defense. And it's one of the longest messages in the Bible. And he basically takes his Jewish audience from the Old Testament all the way through to what was for them current times to explain that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And at the end of his message, um, I don't recommend this happening at the end of any of my messages, but I like response on my messages. But at the end of his message, the people were so stirred up that they bodily picked him up, dragged him outside the city, and stoned him to death. I'd rather that not happen here. I like a response, but that's quite a response, isn't it? I hear a lot of people say, I'd like to get back to doing church like they used to. <laughs> that's how they used to. <laughs> Anyhow... He became the first martyr, the first one to die, it says, for the name of Jesus. And Luke tells us that what happened was that when they did that, it, his death kind of empowered those who were opposed to the movement to kind of unleash their wrath upon the church. And he adds a very chilling detail as an opportunity to introduce what is going to be another key character. Um, in Acts 7, it tells us that when Stephen was stoned, the guys who stoned him um, they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says this, And Saul approved of their killing him. Now, you may or may not recognize that name. Saul is actually the, the Jewish, the Hebrew version of the name Paul. That was a Roman name. Here's what happened next. On that day, a great persecution 
broke out against the church in Jerusalem. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And I think it's interesting when you read that, what I go back to is Acts 1.8. Jesus is making a prediction to them and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they're thinking, oh, we're going to go visit all these places and do these great things. And it's like, this is the fulfillment of that. You go to, you from Jerusalem, you go to Judea and Samaria because of the persecution. You were scattered to those places. And these new disciples, these new followers of Jesus, many of them just headed for the hills. But they left Jerusalem because the persecution was so intense. And it says in verse 2, Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. And what a contrast with the very next verse. But Saul began to destroy. That, that word destroy, it, it, there's a picture that you need to have. Um, another translation says ravage. The, the, the word actually means the picture that you need in your mind is like a wild boar running through the, the grapevines, just ripping everything to shreds as he goes. That's the picture that it gives here of what Paul was doing to the ecclesia, to the church, to those gatherings. It says he was going from house to house, and that's because there was no building. You know, they were meeting temple courts and house to house. He was going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. That's what Saul was doing. And for three years, he continued to persecute the church, to arrest Christians, to throw Christians in jail. Many of these Christians were put to death. And while he persecuted the church, the church continued to grow. It continued to spread. I always looked at it like this. He'd walk up and he'd kick the anthill. And the ants would scatter. And he'd go up and he'd kick the other anthill and the ants would scatter. And he didn't stop it. It just kept growing. And it actually drove the message of Jesus into the areas surrounding and outside of Palestine. And at the end of three years of unchecked persecution of the church, it's now AD 33, something incredible happened that changed everything for Saul. It also changed everything for the spread of the gospel and the whole world. And here's what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, meanwhile, this is three years later now, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, and I'm going to stop right there for a minute. It's very interesting to me. They didn't call them Christians yet. They didn't know what to call it. It wasn't like, you know, First Church of Jerusalem or something like that. Um, (coughs) Go ahead. Oh, (coughs) They called it the way. And that's fascinating to me. I'll throw out Acts. They call it the way. And it's interesting because they don't know exactly why that is. But most people surmise that it's because one of the things that Jesus said... Um, not just once, but one of, the mess- one of the central themes of his message was that there isn't 20 different ways to God. I am the way. That's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth and the life. So these people were going around saying there is only one way. And they kind of called them the way. And I have a feeling it was a little derogatory, but I have a feeling they raised their head and, and felt pretty good when that was said about them. What was interesting was I was thinking about that this week. And as I was working on this message, and one of the things I'm doing in my quiet time with God in the morning is I'm reading through an Experiencing God devotional. And the day that I was going over this, this is what the devotional was about. It was talking about 
um, Jesus being the way. But listen to what it says. If you're walking daily with the Lord, you will not have to find God's will. I can't tell you, one of the most often asked questions I get is, how do I know if this is God's will? I want to find God's will. What you need to do is you need to walk daily with Jesus. That's how you know what God's will is. He said, if you're walking daily with the Lord, you'll already be in it. If you're walking with him in obedience, day by day, you will already be, always be in the will of God. The Holy Spirit's role is to guide you step by step to do God's will. Walking closely with God each day guarantees you will be exactly where he wants you to be. So a lot of people want to know the way. I want to know the way I should be going. I want to know what I should be doing. And there's only one answer, and it's the same answer as it was back then. Jesus. It's about spending time with him. And he says, the disciples never had to ask Jesus where they should go next. I'd never thought about that before. You know what they did? They simply looked to see where Jesus was going, and they stayed close to him. That's what they did. Jesus was their way. They didn't need a map as long as they had Jesus. And too often, we would prefer a roadmap of our future rather than a relationship with the way. It often seems easier to follow a plan than to cultivate a relationship. We can become more concerned with our future than we are with walking intimately with God today. You want to know the way that your life should take? It's the way. That's Jesus. And the only way to know that is to spend time with him every day and to hear his voice, to recognize his voice. You say, oh, I don't recognize his voice. You don't spend enough time with him. Anybody you spend time with, you'll recognize their voice better. So anyhow, that's a side note. You don't have to pay for that. That's all extra. <laughs> he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So that was his plan. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground. It tells us he was actually blinded by the light. I don't know if you know that. That's where that song came from, Blinded by the Light. <laughs> so he's on the ground, and now he's blind, and he hears a voice say to him. So that he's on the ground, he can't see. The voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that's very interesting, because what was Saul persecuting? The church, the ecclesias, the gatherings. This does not say that the voice said, why do you persecute it? It said, why do you persecute me? And Saul's thinking, it's not, I'm not persecuting a, a me, a pronoun. I'm persecuting a thing. I'm persecuting the church is what he's thinking. And, and, and so he's, he says, who, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Saul asks. And the answer comes, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. See, a lot of people think they're persecuting Christians. A lot of people think they're persecuting the church, even today, worldwide, that's Jesus, the body of Christ. Jesus said, I am Jesus who you're persecuting. He replied, now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So he has to be led into the city because he's blind now. He can't see. And meanwhile, there's another guy in Damascus where, where he's headed named Ananias. And, and we're going to pick up his story now because he becomes one of the players. And verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And I want to stop there for a second because um, one of the things I've learned in my life is when God calls you, when God talks to you, you know, not necessarily with a physical voice like he did with them, but when God speaks to you, you know what's the absolute best thing to do? Listen. 
Paul had not listened well, and he had to be knocked off his ride with a light that blinded him to the ground and be led into the city. Ananias was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. God just speaks to him in a vision and he answers. Way better. Way better. If you have the choice, don't wait till God hits you upside the head with a two by four. Listen the first time. The Lord told him this, and I love this. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. I don't know why that just, I love that. Because I would have said, there's more than one Judas in the city, Lord. He's given him directions. He even tells him what street it's on. I don't know why. I just think that's really cool. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, God tells him. And what that says is we don't always remember that God is concerned with every detail of our lives. God knows your name. God knows where you live. God knows the street that you're on. And he says, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And I can just see the wheels turning in Ananias' head. Hmm, that name rings a bell. (laughs) It continues in verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your people in Jerusalem. And now he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your, and here it is again, on your name. That's what he's come here to do. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my now. What's going to happen here is, I think it's cool. It starts, the story starts to get, get kind of rich and, and it, it makes some things start to make sense because we think, how can this, what started as a small group and became a big group in Jerusalem, how could this message survive the first century with all this persecution and all this other stuff? How could it get all over the world? And here's how it does. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name, not my message, not my teaching simply, but my name. To the Gentiles, their kings, as well as the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Ananias, he obeyed, which says a lot about Ananias because he, we know who Saul was and what he'd been doing. So he comes and he places his hands on Saul. He gets healed and, and the blindness goes away. And that took courage. You can see Ananias coming up to the house. You know, he's, he's on straight street. He comes up to Judah's house and it's like, I'm going to knock on the door. I don't want to knock on the door. I know who's in there. The guy who's killed a whole bunch of people and has come here to arrest a whole bunch of people. But he walks in and there's Paul sitting in a chair, blind. He lays his hands on him. And Luke tells us that something like scales fell from his eyes, off Saul's eyes. And he was able to see and they started praying together. And he explained to Saul, Ananias explained to Saul that God, he's given you a unique privilege. He's given you a unique opportunity and a unique mission but you're going to suffer greatly. But your mission is to take this name, this message of the church, the message of Jesus to the entire known world in your lifetime. That's amazing. The scripture goes on to say in verse 19, Saul then spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And I can see how this happened, you know, very slowly, more of the disciples would come and they'd peek in the window, they'd peek in the door, and, and they'd see that's him, but he's not arresting anybody. He's actually listening and learning and absorbing what's happening. And it says, verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were astonished. You bet they were astonished. 
He had come not that long before that to arrest Christians, to arrest people who called on Jesus as the way. And now he's in there preaching to them. And it says, they said, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among all those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take his prisoners um, to the chief priest? It said, even though these people were saying it against him, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Radical life change. And here's what happened. For the next 10 years, over the next 10 years, Saul, Paul, prepared himself for his ministry to the Gentiles. He, he spent two weeks with, with Peter. He spent time with James. And he worked with these people. And he just, uh, all the other leaders of the church, and he just absorbed everything he could so that he was hearing the right stuff. And in A.D. 47, he left for his first journey abroad to take this message to the predominantly Greek and Roman world. And for the next 10 years, he would travel and plant churches. Go ahead and put up map number one. We see way over here uh, on, on your right where Jerusalem is, that little crescent right there, that little area on that side of the Mediterranean, that's, that's the Middle East area. That's where all of, of everything has happened so far in the Bible. What we're looking at here is, is pretty much for them, the known world. We see all the way across the Mediterranean, we see Rome up there who had then come down and kind of was taking them over. But that's what they knew at this time. And, and Paul... Began, it, it actually tells us, Acts Chronicles, three different journeys that he made. And everywhere he went, he planted these gatherings, these ecclesias. Go ahead and put up map two. All it does is, is show us some of the places that he went. He went by ship and he'd go to the ports and then he'd go in. And many of these names, it, I don't, it's probably too small to see, but you would be familiar with them. Um, uh, Philippi, which is the, the letter to the Philippians, Thessalonica, um, Thessalonians, Ephesus, the Ephesians. These are all the places he stopped. These are churches that he planted. And I think this is kind of fascinating because all of the leaders of the church were back in Jerusalem trying to keep that thing from blowing up and trying to, to handle what's back there. And he said, yeah, you handle that. I'm going to go make some more. And so while they're taking care of the church in Jerusalem, he's planting all these churches all over the place. Everywhere he goes, he goes in and he speaks to people and he talks to them about Jesus and demonstrates that Jesus is, is who he said he was. And in AD 58, he's arrested and he's imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. He's imprisoned in Rome for a couple years in rented quarters, and that's where he wrote books like Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. He's released for a couple of years and, and revisits a lot of the churches that he planted. And in AD 66, so it's been almost 20 years since he started on his journeys, he's arrested. And in AD 67, he is executed by someone we've talked about here before, a man named Nero, crazy Nero, who was the emperor of Rome. In AD 68, facing assassination, Nero commits suicide. Nero, after whom people name their dogs. Paul, after whom people name their children. If there's anybody here named Nero, I'm sorry I didn't think that through. <laughs> Nero is, is just a footnote in the history of the church. As big and powerful as he was and thought he was, that's all he is. Here's the significance of that. 
Very, very, very bad things can happen to very, very, very good people. And God is still God. And God still sits on the throne. Very, very, very unexplainable things can happen to people who are extraordinarily faithful. And God is not rocked by that. God is not changed by that. It's not a big mystery to him. It's just part of the story. And it's been a part of the story since the very, very beginning. And never throughout the book of Acts do we find Christians huddled together, afraid that God's lost control or maybe God doesn't love them anymore. We don't find, you know, those American type of complaints. We find a big, bold commitment to this life-changing message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it was Paul's boldness, and it was his courage to get on a boat time after time and visit these pagan cultures that were anti-everything he had to teach. But he consistently did that. That's one of the primary reasons that we know about Jesus today. And the thing that God raised him up to do was to help those of us who don't have that Old Testament background. For the people in his day that they weren't looking for the Messiah. They didn't have that background to help them understand what's the essence of the gospel. What is the message? What is the good news? What's the essence of that? The takeaway, the bottom line. What's the irreducible minimum? That's what he's going to show them. And over and over and over again, the Apostle Paul would go into these Gentile regions, especially like Athens and and Ephesus, and he would say, you know, even if you're not Jewish, even if you never understand the Old Testament, here's the thing you have to understand. Here's the thing that God did in our midst. And in the book of 1 Corinthians, he gives us the synopsis of this message. Corinthians was, Corinth was one of the places he went and started a church And he gives us this message, the takeaway for all of us who are Gentiles, who the non-Jewish people who don't have that rich Old Testament background, who weren't trained to be on the lookout for the Messiah. And in this passage, he defines as clearly as anywhere in the scripture exactly what the gospel is, exactly what the message is that had to be transferred from generation to generation to generation. And here's how he describes it in 1 Corinthians. This is a letter he wrote during the time he was traveling around um, the world to the ecclesias, to the gatherings, to the churches. And this church in Corinth was when he started. Here's what he says to them in 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you. He He was reminding them because he'd already told them. He came into the city and started the church. He says, I wanted to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. And here it is. He says, for what I received, and that's he received it from God. He received it from the apostles and those other leaders. He received it during that time of preparation for his ministry where he absorbed all of that from them and spent time with them. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So that means this is the most important thing. And if you forget everything else, if you lose sight of everything else, if you don't understand anything else, here is what is of most importance. First importance. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. 
that he was buried. That's important because it demonstrates that he really did die. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day. According to the scriptures, it was all written about. And then he appeared to Cephas. Anybody know who Cephas is? Peter. It's another name for Peter. The fact that he appeared to people is important because that proves he he was raised. He appeared to Cephas, he appeared to the 12, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Now, as I read that now, they're not still alive. Okay? But this little document that he's writing here, this letter to them, was probably written in the early 50s AD, like between 50 and 55 AD. That's like about 20-something years after the events. It's not that long ago in their history. And he's saying to these these Christians in Corinth, he says, look, I understand this resurrection thing. I know it's hard to believe. I know sometimes it's hard to get your arms around that. It's hard to embrace the fact that somebody would actually rise from the dead. But you need to know there was over 500 people at one time that saw the resurrected Jesus. And if you want to get a ticket and get on a boat, you can go back to Jerusalem and you can find most of those people. And you can talk to them about it. They're still alive. They talked with Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They're still alive and walking around today. He says, though some have fallen asleep. I mean, some of them have died in the ensuing years, but most of them at that time were still alive. He says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then listen as what Paul says now as he brings it back to himself in terms of his personal ministry. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Now, why would Paul, why would you say that, Paul? You know, you've spent a decade or two of, of your life traveling around in dangerous parts of the world proclaiming a dangerous message that Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah has come. And here's why he said that about himself. Because I persecuted the church, the ecclesia, the gatherings, the assemblies of God. But by the grace of God, I love this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. That is so powerful. We look at what his history was. We look at what who he was. And he says, I'm not denying any of that. I understand I did that. I am not the one who deserves to be doing this. But by the grace of God, I am. And I can say by the grace of God, I am what I am. Anything I am is because of the grace of God. That's powerful. He said, I don't know why God chose me to bring the message to you. Of all the people that should have been chosen to make a difference and to plant all these little ecclesias, these little gatherings, I'm the least of everyone that God should have chosen, but he chose me. And he chose me by his grace. And that was a central message of the Apostle Paul. Paul gave his life so people like us could know that we could know Jesus. He gave his life so that the world could know, and it does. Here's what you need to know. Christ died for your sins, and he was buried, and that's how we know he really died, because he was buried. He was raised, he appeared, and that's the way we know he really died and rose from the dead, because he appeared. He died on a cross for your sins. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. Here's the thing. All the other distractions... All of the other things that people think about, all of the other questions, 
well, I don't know about this uh, Adam and Eve and creation thing in the Garden of Eden. And I don't understand why there's so many different accounts of this. And I don't understand who all these pe- people are in Revelation. And I don't understand this. Those, are, those questions, you know what those are? Those are all distractions. Everybody wants to have all those questions answered before they'll believe. All of those things are distractions. This is first. And here's what I tell people. If you want to wrestle with stuff in Christianity, wrestle with this one first. This is the first thing you wrestle with. This is the thing. This is the main thing. This is first. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. You want to wrestle with something, wrestle with that. And when you get your arms around that, you won't have to understand all of it. You won't have to understand all the other stuff. You can spend the rest of your life figuring all that out. But you come to him with this and say, I believe, Jesus, that you died for my sins. That you were buried, that you were raised, that you appeared to people. And that you want to appear to me. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. I'd like to hear you all say that out loud. If you believe it, say it like you believe it. If you don't, just say it anyhow, because it's good for you to hear the words. I'd like us all to do that together. You ready? Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. If you get nothing else, get that. Because that changes everything. Church is not about a building. Church is not about religion. Church is not about rules. Church is about a person. The way is a person. And that's Jesus. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads as we pray. I know that there's many listening to this now. You're, um, you're really not sure about this because you have so many questions in your mind. Those questions are just distractions. This is the question that needs to be answered. This is the thing you need to to wrestle with because this is the starting point. You can't start in the middle and expect to ever get it or understand it. But you start here and say, Jesus, I don't understand this completely. I don't understand a whole bunch of things about this, but here's what I believe. I believe you died for my sins, that you were buried that you were raised. You appeared to people to prove that. And that you want to appear to me today. You want to be in my life today. A part of my life today. So I believe that you died for my sins. I trust you. I I turn from all of my stuff and turn to you. That's what we do to become a follower of Jesus. That's what we do to become a Christian. That's also what we as Christians do on a regular basis to reorient ourselves to the fact that this is first. It's not about churches and buildings and budgets and, 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 and banners and books and everything else. It's about Jesus. So, Father, I know that there's people here today who are wrestling with questions. They are tough questions. And sometimes we think we have answers and sometimes we don't. But I know that this is first. That Christ died for our sins. Because we were sinners in need of a Savior. He was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. That message gave that first century church a boldness that we want again, Father. We want that boldness to proclaim that name. That it's not about church or religion or rules or regulations or rituals. It's about a relationship with Jesus. 
and that the people in our sphere of influence need to see our hope in that name. And so, Father, anybody here who's not ever experienced that, my prayer is that today would be the day in simple faith they would say, okay, I'll start there. I'll believe that. I'll receive Jesus as my Savior, knowing that that will change everything. Father, we love you, and we thank you for what you're doing in us and through us. Help us to be bold. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the closing song.